Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Anyways, we're doing our last talk on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, which is this full text of a sermon of Jesus that Jesus gives. Um, and tonight we're going to read five verses that are probably the five verses, especially the first verse, that maybe I've heard quoted more often than anything else at Stanford, um, by both Christians and non-Christians alike. And, and we're going to talk about it. And the issue is judgment. Uh, how can we judge people or not? What does it look like to have differing opinions with people? And uh, this is obviously a huge deal, right? We're in a Western liberal culture that's really kind of built on free ideas and open discussion and everything. But at the same time, this past year, uh, in January of this year, Slate, an online magazine, wrote a series of articles and called 2014 the year of outrage um, because we love being outraged by people who we disagree with. And uh, one New York Times columnist said this, we love to feel right and we love to feel wronged. And uh, that's what we like to do. We love to be outraged by people who think differently than us. And while on one sense we're like, my ideas, I'm after justice and goodness and truth, these good things, at the same time we're also, I think, being dishonest with ourselves if we can't admit that we really get off on being right and also being wronged. And we love playing the victim. In the, the series of Slate articles that they wrote about this, they wrote about conservative outrage and liberal outrage. And they wrote about Christian outrage and secular outrage. And the reality is, everybody thinks they're the victim. And of course, you occupy the moral high ground by declaring victimhood first. But then the other person declares they're a victim because you made them an oppressor when in fact they're not an oppressor, right? And so, all the ethnic minorities, socioeconomic classes, uh, different faiths, everybody's claiming to be the oppressed person so that we can feel outraged because we love feeling outraged and defining ourselves against people who we think are idiots. That's how we build identity, right? And so we're shocked when the other people say, no, 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 we're the people who are unjustly oppressed or misunderstood. Um, We love the idea of feeling right, and we love the idea of feeling like we've been wronged. Jesus has five verses to speak very directly into what Christians are to do with that. Uh, But this is indeed for everybody. So here are these words. Judge not that you be not judged. With the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words. They are hard. They're hard to deal with. They're hard to apply. They sound good, but they also sound like they don't make sense. We need you, Holy Spirit, to teach us the humility you have in store for us. Uh, Be with us, God, and make our hearts tender to what you have to teach us. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so this is our question. What do we do when we believe someone else is wrong? Uh, Because we are all upset. We are all outraged at different times over different issues. 
and not just on a social level with regard to like social big picture issues, but this also happens within our friendships too. We all know this because all of us spend time talking about people in a way that's unfair to them. Everybody in this room does that, myself included. And that is the fruit of being outraged and being dismissive towards someone that we disagree with. It's because we spend a lot of time talking about people and we usually caricature them when we talk about them and spend, don't spend nearly as much time talking with them face to face. And so we're confused, right? Um, what is this idea of tolerance? Like, what, what does it mean that I have an opinion that someone else disagrees with or they have an opinion I disagree with? What is pluralism? What, is it, what does it mean that we all have really different views of things? How are we supposed to relate to each other? And of course, what's happened in our culture today, I think everybody would agree to this, is tolerance has come to mean the exact opposite of what it is intended to mean. And by this, I mean um, tolerance uh, basically means now agreement. Right? Tolerance is to tolerate someone is to agree with their views. To disagree with someone is to be intolerant. And this is a huge problem if, I, if we begin to define tolerance this way. Because ours, again, is a liberal culture built on the openness of ideas, the cornerstone of a healthy, functional liberal society. Ideas are debated and discussed. And actually what's happening right now in the academy, places like University of Chicago and Princeton within the last couple of months, the faculty have issued statements preserving the right to disagree because they feel like more and more in the academy, disagreement's not acceptable. There are certain political issues, there are certain gender issues, there are certain religious issues that are no longer allowed to be debated. So here's the statement of, uh, part of the statement of the Princeton faculty that just came out. Education should uh, should not be intended to make people comfortable. It's meant to make them think. Universities should be expected to provide the conditions within which hard thought and strong disagreement and independent judgment and the questioning of stubborn assumptions can flourish in an environment of the greatest freedom. Our chief virtue of tolerance, right, the chief virtue of our culture, is pretty confused. Uh, We talk about it as being agreeing with someone, right? And so when someone makes a delicious chicken sandwich but has a different view on gender and gay marriage than we do, all of a sudden we're, they're intolerant of us so we no longer tolerate their chicken sandwich, which is a big problem if you've ever had the chicken sandwich because it's amazing. But right, <laughs> we're confused about tolerance, right? We disagree with someone and, the, and because we disagree with them, we there kind of construct some structures of intolerance toward them. And so we actually end up being intolerant toward each other Partially because we've now defined tolerance as agreeing with one another, and that's the exact opposite of what tolerance is. This is what uh, one pastor in Nashville said, tolerance that only tolerates people that think like us is not tolerance. What that is is covert prejudice. It's another form of prejudice. Tolerance, I think, is the way Jesus begins to speak about this issue. is about actually how you treat people that you disagree with. The very heart of tolerance is disagreement. If tolerance is to be a virtue at all, there has to be disagreement. The question then becomes, how do you treat people you disagree with? Tolerance is actually revealed, true tolerance, by an ability to love, respect, and be earnest friends with someone that you disagree with. And intolerance is revealed when you find you can only love and respect and be friends with people of your own tribe. And uh, this is actually what former President Clinton said a a couple of months ago. We have one remaining bigotry. 
We don't want to be around anyone who disagrees with us. So really what our question is tonight is actually this. The things you think and the convictions you have, how do those lead or shape us to treat people we disagree with? And that's what Jesus and that's what the gospel speaks into. And so what I want to talk to first, talk about first is what Jesus calls us to, how to do it, and then really the key to get there. What is Jesus calling us to when he's talking about this don't judge people? And he's calling us to some form of tolerance. And the first thing we have to say is we have to say what it's not. This is not a prohibition on having conflicting opinions. And that's often how we use it, right? This is the Bible verse we like to shame people with when they espouse an opinion different from ours, right? Everybody uses it, Christians and non-Christians use it to shame each other all the time, right? Someone says something that's stupid or wrong, that you think is stupid or wrong, and then we all pile on to judge not lest you be judged. And it's like really fun when you get to pile that on to a Christian, right? That's the best part. There's two huge problems with that response. The first thing is that's actually doing the very thing it prohibits, right? You're invalidating a person and invalidating their voice because of their opinion, So you are, first, contradicting yourself, but secondly, that's not what the text actually means. And context tells us what the text means. For much of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has been talking about what's right and what's wrong. He's been very critical and clear on issues like sexual ethics, on things like anger and generosity and forgiveness and loving your enemies. He's been articulating very controversial opinions He's been critical of opposing viewpoints all over the place, and he puts grave warnings, actually, with his, um, with his criticism. One scholar said this, this can't be understood to mean that you're supposed to suspend your critical faculties in relation to other people, to turn a blind eye to their faults, to remove all criticism and refuse to discern between truth and error, goodness and evil. And in fact, elsewhere, Jesus actually tells his people, you need to judge. In John 7, he says, don't judge by appearances, but use right judgment. It's actually saying there, there are wise ways you need to grow in discernment. Because to be human and to have thoughts and to live in a community and to talk to people, that means you have to have critical faculties for determining what's right and what's wrong, what's wise and what's foolish, and make a call on it. So do it well and do it wisely. And in fact, in this very passage, he actually does commend his followers to deal with faults in other people's lives. He's saying... You just haven't been going about it the right way. We have to go about it in another fashion. So what is Jesus talking about? This is not about what you think about people's ideas. It's what you think about people. And it's how you treat them. And it's what we could call a judgmental spirit. And it means that we demean their dignity or their worth. We're dismissive of people. We despise them or we condemn them as people as a result of the fact that we disagree. Uh, If you've heard Jim Gaffigan's McDonald's spiel, which is amazing, he talks about when the first time you find out someone eats McDonald's, you go, oh, I didn't know I was better than you, right? (laughs) In a lighthearted way, that's exactly what Jesus is talking about, right? Oh, you have this viewpoint. Oh, I didn't know I was better than you, right? We love discovering we're better than other people all the time. looks like a lot of different things. What that's called is called self-righteousness. It means that my opinions and my associations, people I'm, my opinions, the community I'm part of, the actions and the moral choices I've made, make me and my tribe more legitimate and worthy of dignity and respect and love. 
right? Whether it's over your political views about things, your social views about things, right? Uh, This is going to be awkward. Like, if you're Greek, you use this word best all the time during rush. Like, we're getting the best girls and we're getting the best guys, which is, like, horribly offensive, and Jesus really hates that. That's really, like, denying dignity to the people who no longer qualify for best. But don't worry, all of us independents, myself included, we all think, I didn't have to pay for my friends, right? That's the way we make ourselves. It just got really awkward in here, right? (laughs) We're going to have a Greek Bible study on Thursday nights and the non-Greek one on Tuesday nights from here on out. But the reason we think those thoughts and use those words, I threw everybody under the bus, don't worry, right? Is because that makes us feel special. And we feel special when we can demean or dismiss someone else. And so everybody's got tools for it in all the different areas. Social life, political life, your personal life, right? They're shallow versus deep. They're stupid versus smart. They work hard versus they're lazy. Moral versus immoral. Issues of sexuality. Christian versus non-Christian. We can use all these little deciding decision points to deny people dignity so that we can feel special. Right? And self-righteousness is the belief that by virtue of my own choices and my own actions, because of the way I am in distinction to you, I'm more worthy of dignity and love and respect. And this is what's going on, is actually out of our insecurity, we need to think highly of ourselves. We're insecure, and the way we're trying to deal with our insecurity is to think highly of ourselves. The way you think highly of yourself is by creating a class of people you can believe you're better than. And what that actually is, is the, st- the Stanford acceptance rate principle applied to all the rest of life. The reason your degree is special is because not everybody got in. Guess what? Your degree wouldn't be special if everybody got in. Right? We can take that principle and apply it to all the rest of life. The reason I'm special in all these other areas is because there's a lot of people that aren't me this way. Right? It's self-righteousness. How do we know this is in us? A lot of different ways. Indifference. We're just hard-hearted toward people. We fail to realize that the cashier, right, the barista, the person who just looks really different is a person that's full of stories and full of pains and full of fears and full of joys and full of feelings. We're just indifferent to that reality because they're just characters in the life about me. Uh, Like I said at the beginning, you talk more about people than you do to people. That allows us to live with a mental caricature of them instead of dealing with who they really are. One of the ways this is revealed in us is that we're angry with people we disagree with, which is not always wrong, but we're angry without any compassion. When Jesus confronted the rich young ruler on his addiction to wealth and success, and Jesus told him, this thing's got your heart, he says, sell everything you have and follow me. In Luke 18.24, it said Jesus looked at him and was sad. Jesus disagreed with him on a crucial issue. This was going to keep the rich young ruler either in or out of the kingdom of God. Huge disagreement. Jesus' frustration with him was matched by his sadness for him. If there's not compassion along with our anger, there can be anger. But if there's only anger and no compassion, then that self-righteousness, I suggest, is probably present in us. The last thing, there are not a lot of things we could talk about. Maybe it's even someone you know and there's relationship, but there's no authenticity. Because people of other tribes who think those certain ways, you could actually never grant them the privilege of authentic friendship. They're not your type. They're not your kind of person. And so your friendship with them is buffered. Either to the degree that you kind of can't be friends with them at all, 
or your friendship is not authentic in the sense that you can never actually talk about your differences and you all just go to try to pretend while you're relating to each other they don't exist. Which means your friendship's not authentic. And authentic friendship is not the result of agreeing on everything. That's actually rarely the case between any two people. Authenticity actually happens in friendship when you can articulate the other person's viewpoint in a way that doesn't offend them. In other words, you know them so well and you care about them so well that you can talk about something you disagree. When you say, I think you believe this, and you begin to espouse their beliefs or their viewpoint, they say, that's it, you got it. Because you can respectfully understand them and no longer caricature them. All of a sudden, you're authentic with each other. Jesus is speaking against the judgmental spirit. Those are just some of the ways we kind of see it in ourselves. And a judgmental spirit doesn't have to do with what we think about people's ideas. It has to do with how we treat them. It has to do with the fact that we begin to deny them dignity because of their ideas. So Jesus begins to set us on a path to deal with that. Right? What do we do? How should we then disagree? And he gives us this image. Why do you not see the speck why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye when there's a log in your own eye? First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. What is Jesus saying? Uh, just yesterday, the head of Focus on the Family, which is a controversial, conservative, Christian, evangelical group, said this. We have lost the credibility, Christians, because we don't have humility. In the cultural, larger cultural conversation. And what he's saying is what's true, maybe in a large um, uh, framework, but also for, I think, each of us, which is we've failed to hear what Jesus is really saying in this passage, that the path forward toward God-honoring relationships with people that we think are in error, Jesus says this, you have to believe that the big problem in their life is not their error and not the speck in their eye, but you. He doesn't deny that there's not something in their eye. Never denies that. But he's saying you need to see that the most threatening thing in the lives, the most threatening thing in the lives of the people I disagree with which is some of y'all, which is my children, which is my wife, which is Christians, which is non-Christians, right? We all disagree with a lot of different kind of people. The most threatening thing in our disagreement is my error, my wrongs, my hypocrisy, my inconsistency, my pride and my anger and my jealousy and my insecurity and my greed and our power-hungry ambition. And more than that, the biggest danger that a Christian poses in the life of a non-Christian is the belief that you don't think your sin is a big danger. That's how Christians are the most dangerous in this world in a truly hurtful way. Is that you think, well, I'm a Christian and I've got everything figured out so I have a lot to offer them and I need to go help them deal with them. Jesus is saying that's the most dangerous thing in the life of the person you disagree with. He gives us dramatic imagery, doesn't he? Can you help somebody getting a speck out of their eye, right? The image is, it's over the top with a log sitting in your own eye. At that point in time, what is more dangerous for that person, their speck or you? What is more dangerous for that person is you. I'm the greater danger. You're the greater danger. 
in the lives of the people you disagree with, more than the issue over which you disagree. And what Jesus is saying is that all criticism and disagreement and discussion and debate has to be preceded by confession. Before you engage in dealing with other people's faults, you have to come to a clear understanding and a sorrow over your own. And they have to be a bigger deal to you than their faults are to you. That's part of the perspective going on between the speck and the log. Your faults have to be a bigger deal to you than their errors are to you. A thorough and experiential, that means you actually feel it, belief in our own brokenness is actually what begins to prevent us from being demeaning and insensitive and dismissive monsters in our disagreements. And there's incredible irony here. Because a lot of times this is the way Christians think. We think, I get credibility by maintaining the moral high ground, right? We think about preserving my testimony by maintaining the moral high ground. That's going to give credibility to this Christian thing I'm going to try to talk about to people who disagree with me, right? My higher than thou sense of my own morality, that's going to persuade people that I'm right. That's how we think. We talk about that all the time. I've talked that way. I've heard several of you talk that way. Jesus is saying the exact opposite is true. The belief in your own moral superiority is precisely what caused you to abuse the people you disagree with. And genuine sorrow about our own faults and brokenness is what will prepare you to serve and seek the healing of those with whom you disagree. This is why. Because it makes you patient. Because you realize God was patient with you. It makes you compassionate because you realize God has been compassionate with you. It makes you gentle because you realize God has been gentle with you. It makes you gracious because you realize God has been gracious with you. So Jesus is actually saying the first step in actually addressing disagreement and actual real faults and flaws in other people's lives, the first step is dealing with yourself. And that credibility and persuasiveness and helpfulness, especially on matters of the heart, right, the deepest things of life. Credibility and persuasiveness and helpfulness comes not from a sense of your own moral superiority. It comes from being gentled by being sad about your own sin. That will make you persuasive, credible, and helpful. It doesn't come from your moral record, but from being humbled by your own flaws and the grace of God. So the first thing is to deal with ourselves in those sorts of ways, in the ways this image calls us to, but secondly, to aim for restoration and relief and not aim for destruction. Because he says, do this so that you can help them, right? So you can see clearly to take the speck out of your own brother's eye. Paul In Galatians 6.1, Paul says, if anybody's caught in transgression, if they're caught in wrong, you who are spiritual should restore him with a spirit of gentleness. That's Paul speaking to the church, but Jesus is speaking here and it's applying... To everyone, Jesus is communicating two things with this imagery of using the eye. And the first thing is this. It's delicate. Eyes are delicate and they're sensitive things and they require calm and gentle touch. If you've ever touched your own eye, the first time you put contacts in your eye, it's terrifying, right? If your aim is for their restoration... If your aim is for someone to be healed, if your aim is for them to experience joy, your goal will be to do as little as damage as possible. 
if the Bible has informed your view of who people are that we're all made in God's image, that there is inherent dignity in everyone because they exist and God made them, then your disagreements and your attempts at correction and your debate, your goal will never be to wound them, but to preserve them. To get the speck out and do no more damage to the eye itself. There'll be a gentleness and a tenderness which doesn't preclude being direct, but does care deeply that any pain that might even be necessary, right? There's going to be some irritation because it's painful to flush things out of an eye that there not be one more iota of pain than is necessary. That there's a gentleness required in dealing with the eye. And there's a gentleness required with dealing with the flaws in others. Aim for restoration and relief, not destruction. Paul says, restore them with a spirit of gentleness. The purpose of addressing flaws and errors in the lives of others is their relief. The purpose is not to win. Paul says, aim for their restoration. Here's what it means. That means you deal with people you disagree with in a manner that means on the other side of the process, they want to be your friend. That when you disagree, the goal of the disagreement, getting to the end, well, y'all are friends. They want to be with you. They trust you. They're restored both to the comfort and the love of God and to friendship with His people. How would you conduct yourself differently in the tense relationships you have? Again, whether it's on like hot-button political or social issues, but also just right, the friendships. Right? We all are hurting each other. You're frustrated with each other. How would you conduct yourself differently if your goal was after the issue was handled, y'all trusted each other more deeply as friends? What if that was your goal? How would you speak? How would you handle yourself? What would you say? What would you do? Because we do need to talk through things. And friendship requires that we talk to each other about our faults and about our flaws and about what's going on in our life. But Proverbs 27 says this, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Right? The issue of sexual sins. Christians trying to understand the beauty of God's call to chastity. Wonder what are we supposed to do when kind of people in our Christian group are sleeping together. Right? And our instinct is judgmentalism. Who are they? Can they still be a part of our group? Let's despise them. There's a denigration. There's, there's a gossip that goes around behind them. You kind of place them in this lower spiritual rank all of a sudden. And our instinct is to go to them and say, you know what God said, you need to shape up. What if your goal was not for them to be ashamed and stop? Right? Let's shame them so they'll stop. But your goal was, I'm thinking through this, I'm trying to figure out how to talk to somebody that I see flaws in, that I know are harmful. What if your goal was for them to see and experience the beauty of God's grace and for them to be enamored with God's covenantal design for intimacy? What if your goal is actually their joy? doesn't mean you don't say hard things, but I suspect it would change the type of person you were when you begin to talk to them. Jesus never bullies people into restoration and repentance. I've been in ministry for a while. I've never seen someone scolded into faith in Jesus. And in fact, the only people that Jesus ever kind of takes the strident tone with and the dismissive tone with are the religiously proud. The sin that we see Jesus address with very sharp rebuke 
that he scolds over is the sin of religious pride and moral superiority. Those are the people that Jesus gets really irritated with. So what is the key? How can we this is impossible, right? We can imagine it, we can think in ideal ways, maybe we could do that, but it's impossible. And I'm going to close with this. What is God's tool, big picture, for persuasively communicating His truths into the hearts of people? It's actually not an argument. It's the life of a person. What if truth, right, something you're arguing for and you believe in, rightly so, What if truth was something better communicated by how you live than how you argue? What if your goal was not to win by the mastery of rhetoric and reason and spouting off Bible verses? What if your goal was not to get your friend or opponent or whoever to concede, yes, your points are valid, finally I agree with you, because that never happens, by the way. But your goal was, I want them to experience the love of God. What if your goal was, I want them to experience the freedom of not feeling shame? What if that's what you aimed for in the life of the person you disagree with? What if your goal was for them to experience what it feels like when someone who doesn't owe you anything serves you? What if that was your goal? What if, in fact, your quote-unquote arguments, because you've got to talk, right? What if your arguments were actually just stories about how someone did these things for you? What if your goal was for them to feel what it feels like to be forgiven? To be treasured? What if your goal was for them to feel like what it feels to be a part of a family? What over and over again Jesus is calling us to in the Sermon on the Mount, I think what He's been showing us is how to carry the love of God into the lives of the world around us. What if lives that were lived this way, right, that forgave profusely, that loved enemies, that pursued chastity, that was incredibly generous, what if that, not rhetoric and our clever apologetic arguments, but what if lives lived that way was his argument for the validity of the Christian faith? When John the Baptist sent messengers to ask Jesus, are you the one, right, are you the Savior, to persuade them that, yes, in fact, God's great work of redemption had concentrated himself in this person, Jesus. This is what he said. Look at what I'm doing. That's how Jesus persuaded people who God was and that the Christian faith was right, right? We're still asserting things. But the way he went about persuading is he said, look at what I've done. I've fed hungry people. I've healed sick people. I've forgiven sinners. The truth of the gospel is communicated to our hearts by actions. And God actually understands humanity and even human psychology and spirituality better than I do. He knows that our minds are not very easily persuaded by rhetoric. But our hearts are very easily compelled by love. The first thing Jesus is called in the book of John, when John introduces his book and talks about Jesus, he calls Jesus the Word. John is saying, God's word of truth is a person. If you want to understand God, see what this person does. What if truth wasn't an idea, but a person? What if truth was not persuaded so much by argument, but by love? 
What if truth broke into people's lives and imaginations, not by your cleverness, but by seeing in you a humble life that's full of repentance, that's made tender by the sorrow of your own sin, that's full of humility and unwillingness to think much of yourself, that's full of worship, you found something worthy of treasure and singing about, and it's full of a tender, self-giving love for people, not because they deserve to be loved that way because they agree with you, but simply because they're people. That's going to be far more persuasive than memorizing a bajillion Bible verses and beating people up with them. And that's exactly what Jesus did. He just loved people in a self-sacrificial way. We think truth and love are odds with each other. And we'll just kind of, I've described myself this way. Right? How do, how do we... I, I'm so truthful, love's hard for me. I always tell it like it is, and, and you know, I'm not afraid to be hard, so I need to work on love. I'm not a loving person, I always tell the truth. And then there are the loving people, right? I'm a really loving person, it's hard for me to say true but hard things. Truth without love is not Christian truth. And love without truth is not Christian love. Because truth, the truth of the gospel, begins with the fact that God is love. And because love actually also seeks healing and restoration. So it says true things about the world. There's no such thing as truth without love. And there's no such thing as love without truth. I just don't think those things are separate from each other as we think. They're one and they're shown perfectly together in the life of Jesus who didn't back down one iota from conservative, biblical, Christian ethics. And yet at the same time was kind and generous and patient and welcoming and loving in a way that's incomprehensible. The kind of people he hung out with should confuse us all the time. That he is the most conservative Christian that ever lived. Did you know that? Most conservative Christian that ever lived. He hung out with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes. Prostitutes were at Jesus' parties. This means at this point, most of the fraternities here weren't as parties with crazy enough guests for Jesus. That's what that means. Most conservative Christian ever. Prostitutes at his parties. How do you deal with that? Right? Think it's truth and love. What this means for us, for Christians in the room, there's people all over the place in here for Christians. This is what this this text means for us. We need to apologize to non-Christians and to roommates and to skeptics and to parents and to friends and to your internet foes, right? Because we haven't followed our Savior on this in the art of disagreement and persuasion. We've resorted, we live a double life, right? We're one person around our Christian friends, another person around our non-Christian friends. We talk about them both, right? When we're Christian friends, we talk about our non-Christian friends. When we're with our non-Christian friends, we talk about our Christian friends, right? And when we need to, we retreat in one of the cam- into one of the camps so we can feel normal for a minute, right? When we're with our Christian friends, we're smug and we're arrogant and we comment about people behind people's backs. We're dismissive and sometimes even hopeless for all kinds of people. We think they're just certain kinds of people, right? That grace can't reach. In our worst moments, maybe we even delight in the suffering of others. We're arrogant and we're proud, thinking they deserve what they get. Which means we haven't heard or understood what Jesus has said on this. The problem is not that we are not Christian enough. Uh, Sorry, the problem is not that... Sorry, the problem is not that we are too Christian. The problem is that we're not Christian enough. The problem is that we don't really still get what Jesus is doing and who did. That this is what empowers, this is what Jesus is calling us to, this is the tool, this is the key. That at the heart of the Christian faith is a man who died 
for his enemies. That's our one big central thing that has to change the way we think about our enemies. That has to change the way we think about disagreeing. He died for his enemies, and some of his closing words, not his last words, but some of his last words on the cross, were praying for the forgiveness of his enemies, which is us. And being recipients of that kind of love, being enemies of God, and yet God died for us and prayed for our forgiveness in his death. A heart that that's beginning to dawn on produces the kind of tolerance and love that Jesus is talking about here. And if we really begin to understand that, we would grow in the same kind of heart Jesus has toward his enemies. I, kind of, I, I don't know how to close this other than be confused by it. It is beautiful. Be confused and be challenged by who Jesus was. I think is the only way that we actually can work and, and, and begin to live together and begin to love people that we can't stand because we're going to get humbled not by anything else than our own sin and our own misgivings and our own faults and we're going to hear the words of forgiveness and we're going to see the sacrifice of Jesus and see how he deals with his enemies when we see how he deals with us that's how Jesus wants to go about disagreeing with people let's pray